So we come this Lord's Day to continue in our study on the topic, the God of all comforts, whereby He comforts us in a host of ways. The last many weeks we've touched upon this matter, God comforts us by the oath He made to Christ, appointing Him our High Priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews describes the new covenant as being a special type as Christ's last will and testament. The reason the new covenant operates as a will and testament is that in order for its promises to be carried out, Christ had first to sacrifice Himself in the place of His poor sinful people. By dying for us at Calvary, He stood between God and us being God Himself as well as a man, and brokered the exchange of the new covenant blessings and salvation for old covenant disobedience and wrath which He took upon Himself. Hebrews tells us that by Christ's death there is redemption of the transgressions that were under the old covenant. It is by Christ's bloody death that the new covenant promise of forgiveness of our sin is brought to pass. A key point raised in Hebrews at this point is that this redemption even applies to the transgressions under the Old Covenant, those sins of olden times that doomed the Lord's people to judgment and wrath. How could God pass over those sins and not carry out the wrath He promised upon all sin? How could He save His people from their sins? The answer is that Christ's atoning death on the cross redeems from all the sins of all of God's people from beginning to end. Paul makes it clear in Romans 3, the same as Hebrews, that this forgiveness even applies to the sins that were committed before Christ died. God waited on Jesus to pay the price for His people and withheld His wrath until it could be poured out on Jesus on the cross for us. By doing this, God demonstrates His righteousness, His justice being fully satisfied by the blood of Christ shed for us. Hebrews makes clear that this gospel promise of the new covenant comes to all those who are called by God. These are the beneficiaries of Christ's last will and testament. Scriptures explain that God calls those that He loves and knows whom He foreknew, them He also predestinated to be conformed to the image of Christ. And whom He predestinated, them He also called. And whom He called, them He also justified. And whom He justified, them He also glorified. So we can see that the people who are called of God unto Jesus Christ are all justified and they're all glorified. Not a one of them fails to enter into the inheritance of the new covenant promise. Those who are called to receive the eternal inheritance are those who rest all their hope for salvation and life in the very body and blood of the Lord Jesus. The angel told Mary's husband Joseph this particular truth when he announced that Mary's child was conceived of the Holy Ghost and he must be named Jesus for he will save his people from their sin. The promise of the new covenant that our sins would be forgiven is thereby laid upon Jesus. As both God and man, He will carry out that great long-awaited 
salvation of God's people from their sins. This is what the angel told Joseph. Finally, note this well in normal circumstances. The person who writes the will and signs it, the testator, has no power to carry it out for it cannot be carried out until after the testator is dead. It is the executor that is supposed to carry out the promises of the inheritance made by the testator in his will. But Christ's New Testament is the only example of a will in the history of the world where the testator is the same person as the will's executor. Christ died to put His will into force, but He rose again to see to it that its promises are fulfilled. This is His duty as our great high priest. He both sacrificed Himself for our sins and He lives to make intercession for us and to present His sacrifice as a full atonement to redeem us from our sins. We can have no doubt that having paid so great a price to carry out the promise of the forgiveness of our sins, our Lord Jesus will not fail to ensure that that promise is perfectly applied to us as the heirs. Jesus is sitting there even now for us in His human body at the right hand of glory, interceding, pleading, and superintending to make sure His new covenant promises are carried out perfectly for our everlasting benefit and God's overwhelming and eternal praise and glory. No wonder we are greatly comforted by God's solemn oath to Christ that He will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, remembering that Hebrews is written at first instance to Jewish believers, some of whom are thinking about walking away from Christ and going back to their ethnic roots, if you will, and returning back to the synagogues and the temple and the sacrifices and the Aaronic priests and all the rituals that they had left when they followed after Jesus. Hebrews reminds these Jewish readers in particular that the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, was also dedicated by blood. And we've remarked on this Previously, but in Hebrews 9 at verse 18, after describing how Christ's New Testament is executed by bloodshedding of the testator, and after having explained why this was necessary, the writer of Hebrews goes on at verse 18, whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Recall that the people swore to obey God's commandments at that dedicatory set of sacrifices. And the writer of Hebrews, by pointing this out, is comparing in a subtle way the blood of the sacrifice that ordained the Old Covenant with the blood of the sacrifice that carries out the New Covenant. For the blood is typological and symbolical of what Christ did, and yet it is manifestly different. Christ's offering is manifestly superior to the offering of the blood of the Old Covenant. And Hebrews is therefore continuing this comparison and contrasting of the Old Testament rituals and sacrifices 
and the work of the Aaronic priesthood with the new covenant promises and offering and work of the new covenant priest, the Lord Jesus. He keeps bringing up Old Testament references to tie them together with New Testament teachings about Christ's gospel. The people promised in the Old Covenant to obey God's commandments. And because they wouldn't obey the commandments and couldn't obey the commandments and almost immediately overthrew the covenant and created a golden calf to worship, called that golden idol their God that delivered them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and thereby insulted and degraded the honor of their true God and violated the covenant. So that this blood of the old covenant, which was to witness their promise to be obedient to the law of the old covenant, it witnessed against them. It was a memorial against them when they broke the covenant. It stood as a a sharp warning, didn't it? As if it said, you break my covenant, you violate it, you disobey me, and it will be a bloody mess, literally. There will be wrath to come for your disobedience. And of course, this was in keeping with what God's commandment had always been. It was always promised that there would be wrath and dying as the response of God against sin in His creatures. And so in a very real sense, this blood of the old covenant which was shed, it stood as a foretelling of the wrath that would follow against their crimes. But Have you ever noticed that the blood of the new covenant that is, that Christ shed to dedicate His new covenant, to bring it into effect, to give it its force and power, that is, of the forgiveness of sin, His blood of the new covenant was for the forgiveness of sin. The blood of the old covenant that Moses sprinkled upon the book and the people, it didn't promise forgiveness of sin at all. It was an implicit promise of judgment for sin. Not so, Christ's blood of the new covenant. His blood of the New Testament was for the forgiveness of sins. He said as much Himself when He instituted the Lord's table, as we know very well. Now, ironic priests offered sacrifices to make a temporal atonement for sin, to cleanse unclean things. You think of lepers, You think of those who had done other things that rendered them ceremonially unclean. And you think of just flat out sin, disobedience against the law. The priests offered sacrifices to atone for sin and to cleanse the unclean. And the writer of Hebrews has repeatedly brought this up because it meant that Christ as a priest of a different covenant made on better promises. He needed to have a sacrifice to offer like the Aaronic priests did. He needed to have offerings that could purge away uncleanness. But always, always the writer stresses Christ's offering was better than the Old Testament offerings. And they could never really purge the conscience from sin. 
They could only cleanse the flesh, as it were. Make a temporal forgiveness of sin. But the Lord Jesus' offering and His priestly work was of much finer material and wrought an outstanding consequence of true forgiveness of sin and a true cleansing of the conscience. And not only that, as we spoke of several weeks ago, a miraculous transformation of the people for whom the offering by Christ was made. But now finally, the writer sums it all up at verse 21 of Hebrews 9, where it says, Moreover, Moses, that is, sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. Now he did that at a different time than when the covenant was ratified, where the people promised to keep God's law. In fact, he sprinkled the blood both of the tabernacle and the vessels of the ministry after they had made a golden calf and disgraced themselves and violated the covenant. And God was angry with them. Remember, Moses made an atonement for him at that time also. But he's moving on more generally from the blood that executed the old covenant, which spoke implicitly of judgment against sin for breaking it. Now he's moving on to the way the blood was used to dedicate and sanctify and cleanse the temple. All the other things that blood was used for. And then he says at verse 22, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood. Notice the writer is careful there to use the word almost. Almost all things are purged by blood. And this is a reference to things the Jewish readers would readily understand that generally speaking and overwhelmingly it was the case that if there was an uncleanness, a major uncleanness, let's put it that way, or if there was a sin, or if there was atonement to be made, it was made with blood. It was made with blood. Blood that had been used to execute the old covenant, blood that had been used to dedicate and sanctify the temple and its furnishings, also used, generally speaking, not 100% of the time, but overwhelmingly, the offerings of the Old Testament are animal sacrifices of one sort or another in order to cleanse from uncleanness and from sin. Now, sometimes it was water, and sometimes for very poor people, they could bring a meal offering, that is some flour, some wheat, if you will, or corn, whatever their crops were. They could bring that as an offering. But generally, it was by the shedding of blood. Almost all things, Hebrews says, is by the shedding of blood. And then, at the last half of verse 22, is this astounding statement, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Without shedding of blood is no remission for sin. There's no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Now, we all know that when a person sins, God promised, God had declared the penalty for sin. Even in the Garden of Eden, in the day that ye eat of that forbidden fruit, dying ye shall die. 
This is the way death entered into the world, Paul teaches in Romans 5. Death passed upon all men that day that Adam ate of that forbidden fruit. All of us have sinned in Adam and then we sin in our own proper persons as well. And the penalty for it that God's promised, whose word cannot be broken, is that the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And this has been underlined in the Old Covenant of Moses, but it's been the rule since the creation of mankind that the punishment for sin is death. We are put to death by God because of our sin, and yet our sin doesn't stop there. We, we hate God even when we die. And even when we're in punishment of hell, we hate God. And our sin never stops. The punishment never ends. And we are eternally miserable in the punishment that was made. But by the shedding of the blood of another, there is remission of sin, isn't there? But the writer of Hebrews makes this plain. Without the shedding of blood is no remission. And he means by that by a suitable sacrifice. And he's not talking about animal sacrifices here. Because in the end, they never take away sin, do they? And he makes that clear. Uh, he's made it clear already, and he'll make it even clearer in Hebrews chapter 10. God declared this truth that he would accept sacrifices of animals and their blood to make a temporal atonement for the sin of the people. But they knew that in the end, it was not sufficient to take away their sin. And therefore, God established a pattern in Old Testament times to point to Christ. The shedding of blood required to take away sin. That there would be a substitution made. And we see this all through the Old Testament. We see it with Abel's sacrifice of an animal which the Lord accepted while rejecting Cain's sacrifice of the fruit of his own labor. In the field, we see it in Abraham and the lamb provided by God to take the place of Isaac for his sin. And we see it in the Old Testament Passover where the blood of the lamb was displayed on the doorposts and the death angel passed over and was not permitted to judge those people for their sin while he judged all of Egypt for theirs. And then in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament law, we see that these animal sacrifices were pointing to Jesus, our substitute, in the judgment. And this is the, the theme of much of the book of Hebrews, that these things were a type and shadow of the better sacrifice that was to come, the one that really could take away our sin and fulfill the New Covenant promises. You know, it was so important, so important that the blood of a slain animal be protected from common use and set apart as used only as a sacrifice for sin. God made this clear beginning right after the flood when He first allowed mankind to slay and eat animals. Before that, we were all vegetarians. But afterwards, after the great judgment of the universal flood that destroyed all but Noah's family and the animals 
on the ark. God laid down this principle that the blood of animals and the blood of humans was sacred to God and could not be spilled, could not be shed, especially with the animals, could not be eaten if the animal was slain for the food of the people of the earth. In Genesis 9, we know the text well. After Noah and his family come off the ark, God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Because they're the only people alive at that point. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, and upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea. Under your hand are they delivered. Now this is something new and dreadful. It's the descending of the creation into further and deeper bondage and sadness and sorrow that now the animals are not to be protected by the people, but rather they may be killed and eaten and hunted by the people. It says at verse 3, Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. So this is God expanding the menu of humanity into the killing of other creatures lesser than they. And look at what it says at verse 4, But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. So here's the commandment that if you do kill an animal to eat it, you have to drain off the blood first. And they, of course, had developed methods of doing that. Usually you slit the veins in the throat and hang the animal upside down until all the blood pours out onto the ground. But God prohibits them from eating the blood that's in the flesh of the slain animal And then look at what it says, And surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require. And at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. This is a lead up into the next verse. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And what God is saying here is that whoever takes a human life, an innocent human life, that that person should be put to death. And that if it's an animal that takes a human life, it shall be put to death. And whoever it is, man or beast, that destroys a human life by shedding its blood, why then they will be subject to wrath. Murderers must be put to death. This is what God's Word teaches. And why is that? Because in the image of God made He man. He sets out here mankind as a special highest order of His creation. As it was said earlier in Genesis, let us make man in our image after our likeness, God said. And the Holy Trinity did so and made man after the image of God. Now this is a great mystery and it has all sorts of depth to it. But it means that we have spirits that can commune with God and He can commune with us. We're not like the animals in that way. We have the ability to reason, to think, to create, to discover. We have the ability to worship. We have the ability to disobey. 
God's commandments. But notice well, the blood stands for the life of the creature. This is what God's Word teaches. It's not so much the physical blood itself that's being warned against, but that blood stands in the place of the life. And we know that when the blood is shed, when someone exsanguinates, as the Word puts it, why then they'll be dead, won't they? And of course, nowadays we have synthetic blood which can keep someone going for a couple of hours, maybe. But still it is true that men or creatures, the higher creatures can't live without their blood. And so if their blood is shed, then their lives are taken away. And notice how a person's blood is most precious to God. And he says it's because man is made in his image. And we don't have the right to take innocent life because God is the giver and taker of all life. But when these words were written, it's hard to know who knew that one day the Lord Jesus would take upon Himself flesh and blood. He is not only God Himself, but in His humanity, you see, He becomes the perfect image of God as Hebrews 1 tells us. He has spoken to us in these last days by His Son, by whom He made the world. Being the image of the Godhead bodily and being the brightness of His glory. So our Lord Jesus, you see, has become our flesh and blood. He's been made like His brethren. He's been made our kinsman that He might have a right to redeem us. And His blood would one day be shed to redeem us. Here is what is behind this teaching in Genesis chapter 9. But the Scriptures go on. In the 17th chapter of Leviticus, we read that this morning, God required all animal sacrifices to be made at His tabernacle and nowhere else. Now, some people read Leviticus 17, they get all confused. You have to keep reading until the issue resolves itself. It doesn't mean they couldn't kill animals and eat them. It meant that if they killed an animal for a sacrifice to God, they had to do it in the proper way. They had to do it according to the laws of the covenant that they swore, which was to bring the animal to the tabernacle, to the place which God had ordained for these sacrifices to be made. Anyone who offered a sacrifice to God anywhere else was to be cut off from the people. He should be cut off from among the people, whether they were foreigners or native-born Israelites. God was taking unto Himself the right to specify the detailed ways and places and means by which a sacrifice could be made. And then at verse 10 of Leviticus 17, we read this, Whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel or of the strangers that sojourn among you that eateth any manner of blood, I will even set my face against that soul that eateth blood and will cut him off from among his people. So see, this is a recapitulation, a restatement of the law that God gave to Noah and his descendants right after the flood. That there would be not permitted any eating of the blood of an animal that had been killed for food. And he gives the reason, doesn't he? 
God reserves the blood for Himself as an atonement and satisfaction for sinners. It cannot be used for any other thing than to make atonement. And this becomes clear in the verses that follow. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. And that last clause is probably the source of the writer Hebrews stating, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. It is given to make an atonement. It cannot be used for any other purpose, especially for consumption by human beings. And notice that it says in verse 12, it says, Therefore I said unto the children of Israel, No soul of you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger that sojourneth among you eat blood. Verse 14, For it is the life of all flesh. The blood of it is for the life thereof. Notice that God recognizes this this equivalence that He is making this statement about blood because it stands for the life of the creature. It stands for the life of the creature. Even if the creature dies from poison or some other means, nevertheless, the blood is the visible, if you will, source of life of all of the higher creatures. Therefore, I said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall eat the blood of no manner of flesh, for the life of all flesh is the blood thereof. Whosoever eateth it shall be, shall be cut off. So this text makes it clear that God has ordained that the forgiveness of sin and atonement for sin is only by bloodshedding. And that that blood is reserved by God for the help of His people for their reconciliation to God in the Old Testament only for temporal purposes. And it's no wonder Hebrews therefore states Hebrews 9 and verse 22, For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. No remission, no forgiveness. Forgiveness for our sins requires the shedding of blood. You would think with a text that clear, that dogmatic, that modern false preachers and heretics would not dare to dispute it, but they do. I know some that do. I've argued with some that do. They claim, oh no, there was no blood shedding needed for God to forgive us of our sin. Well, tell all the Israelites of the Old Testament that. Tell the writer of Hebrews that. It says so in black and white. Well, no, no, see, God could always forgive sin just whenever He wanted to. He didn't have to have sacrifices or offerings. Yeah, but what about this text that says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. And you know what they do then? They go ransack the Old Testament to find examples where God accepted non-bloody offerings which were rare, which didn't take away sin anyway. And they use those to destroy the plain text meaning of what the writer of Hebrews says here. And they ignore the fact that even in the Old Testament, God said that I've given you the blood of animals to make an atonement for your souls. But these sort of people don't take the Scriptures seriously and they don't read all the Scriptures in context and they don't care to coordinate and work out 
suitable explanations for what Scriptures mean so as to remove any contradiction, what they do is they look for a text that they think supports their view and then they just dismiss all the other texts that are contradictory to their view. But the Jewish believers certainly knew it to be true, didn't they? They knew. In fact, John Gill quotes some Jewish scholars as saying that Without blood, there is no atonement. Without blood, there is no atonement. Without blood, there is no atonement. And so it is true. The Lord has told us this. Now, it's no wonder that the Lord Jesus offered His shed blood, His very life, for the forgiveness of sins promised by the new covenant. You see, if animal sacrifices had finally taken away sin, there'd be no need for the new covenant and no need for the Lord Jesus, would there? Just the fact that God articulated the new covenant in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel, the fact that He articulated that He would forgive their sins and remember them no more, that really is all we need to know that the Old Testament sacrifices were merely types and shadows. Because if they could have taken away sin, then why would God be promising a new covenant? Why would He be promising to forget the sins of His people, to forgive them, to put them behind Him, to remember them against us no more? Why would He do that if the old covenant and its sacrificial system did the job? Because it didn't. It was just a picture. It was a type. It was a proof that no man could keep the law and obtain righteousness thereby. That something better, something by God's grace would have to be offered to save us. And sure enough, sure enough, just as God gave the people the blood of the animals for a temporal sacrifice of atonement, so He gave His Son's life and blood to forever purge our sins, didn't He? That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying through all these texts of Scripture. That the blood of the Old Covenant couldn't take away sin, but the blood of the new covenant was explicitly shed for the remission of sin, wasn't it? You know, the Lord Jesus said this the night He was betrayed. This is My blood of the new covenant shed for many for the remission of sin. You see, He tied His offering on the cross together with that verse in Leviticus 17. The blood is given to you to make an atonement for your soul but the blood of Jesus far richer to make a complete and eternal atonement for our souls, to take away our sin, to forgive our sins forever, and to save us to the uttermost. And Christ's statement the night He was betrayed makes it clear. You want to know how the new covenant can promise to forgive sin when the old covenant and all of its sacrifices apparently couldn't manifestly couldn't. I'm offering my blood, the Lord Jesus tells us, on the cross for the remission of sin. And it will execute and make possible the promise of the new covenant which old covenant sacrifices could not bring into effect. That God will not remember against His people their sin anymore. No wonder we are comforted by God's oath to Christ to make Him a better priest with a bloody sacrifice 
That is Himself of infinite value. And God surely did give to us the Lord Jesus' blood and His body to make an atonement for our soul. But it is an atonement that far exceeds in quality and glory and splendor and cost anything that was provided under the old covenant, wasn't it? Remember the words of that song that we like to sing, only the tune is very complicated. Written by Horatius Bonner, No blood, no altar now, the sacrifice is o'er. No flame, no smoke ascends on high. The Lamb is slain no more. He's speaking there of the old covenant sacrifices. But richer blood has flowed from nobler veins to purge the soul from guilt and cleanse the reddest stains. We thank Thee for the blood, the blood of Christ Thy Son, the blood by which our peace is made, our victory is won, great victory o'er hell and sin and woe that needs no second fight and leaves no second foe. So it is true that one day in history, in our history, about 2,000 years ago, the final fulfillment of that Old Testament prophecy, I have given you the blood to make an atonement for your soul, was seen in the offering of Jesus at Calvary. And He shed His precious blood to take away our sin. And now we're not under the old covenant judgments anymore. And we're not under the old covenant faulty sacrifices that could never purge away sin. But we have the offering of Christ. And around this table, we celebrate that offering. We rejoice in it. We marvel at the kindness of Jesus in leaving us a celebration, a ceremony to carry out each Lord's Day when we gather around the Lord's table. Let's give thanks for the body and blood of Christ. We think of that image that's set before us, the bread and the wine. Let's give thanks for the bread that pictures His body that was torn for us. Oh God, our Father, we rejoice in the body and blood of Your Son, that You gave us the blood to make an atonement for our souls. But we didn't make the atonement. Jesus did as our great high priest. He laid down His life for His people. He shed His blood to save us from our sins. We give You the praise for it. We thank You that He left us this this picture, this bread to show us, to remind us that all our hope and life and breath and eternity and joy come down to the body and blood of Jesus that He sacrificed for us on Calvary's tree all those years ago. Thank You for this bread we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And the Scriptures tell us that on the night He was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. I'd like to ask Brother Whitten if he'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for us. And after they had supped, the Scriptures tell us the Lord Jesus took the cup and gave thanks and said, Drink ye all of it. This cup 
is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as you do it in remembrance of me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 17 in the black book. Lord Jesus Christ, we seek Thy face within the veil. We bow the knee, O let Thy glory fill the place. And bless us while we wait on Thee. We thank Thee for the precious blood that purged our sins and brought us nigh. All cleansed and sanctified to God, Thy holy name to magnify. Number 17.